Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. My guest this week is Simon Presley, Managing Director of Propertyology, Australian REIA Real Estate Hall of Famer and graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Simon, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me on, Jordan. We're in interesting times. Uh, I was watching the footy last night. I know you're a bit of a Lions fan. Uh, I was was thinking, gee, it's weird without these crowds, but I guess the Lions are sort of used to that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Very funny, Jordan. Um, this, This is our year, my friend. (laughs) <laughs> it's so funny everyone's saying this at the moment i've um i follow on instagram uh, a st kilda sort of fan group they're called saints tv official and you know it's one of those classic groups where they just uh, obsess over everything and they've got all these memes going on talking about how this is st kilda's year but i feel like that must be the the call for everyone every year right like, it's just, this is our year. We're going to get it done. Yeah, well, I guess you've got the extremes there with St Kilda. What's it been? Probably 60 years that they've been saying that and it still hasn't happened. At least uh, my beloved <laughs> Brisbane Lions, it's only been a decade or so, and um, I've still got that taste. I was fortunate enough to be at all three grand finals at the MCG. So, um, uh, to be honest, yeah. um, probably three of the most exciting days of my life. Yeah, I'd say Brisbane with Geelong, probably the two greatest modern day teams, uh, and Hawthorne. And Hawthorne, for I'd sure. Say, I'd say those would be in the top three. Yep. Um, it is, yeah, it's unfortunate. I think St Kilda and Melbourne are the two with the longest drought. I think Melbourne's got about 70 years, and we've got about, uh, no, we've got about 70, right? No. We're in 2020 now, so we're, we're just under that, whereas Melbourne, their last grand final was 50 two or 55 something like that it's a long drought but um, my hat goes off to all those um very loyal supporters who have stuck fat during uh during that long long period of time that's for sure now uh we were chatting before about uh corona i want to get later i want to get into that later into the show let's let's start off i guess with you and your upbringing you grew up in a military family i think you originally born in adelaide uh, I, I was curious about what sort of your earliest memory growing up as a kid. My earliest memory, um, oh, it's all—it's always—it's funny. You mentioned AFL. Um, AFL, I remember in the early days. I remember lots of uh, family gatherings. Um, 
mum and dad born in Adelaide and, you know, I was up to about the age of 11, Jordan. I had five grandmothers still alive. Um, So, you know, a couple of great-grandmothers in there and uh, I just remember lots of birthday celebrations, Christmases, Mother's Day, Father's Day, as it was always around grandparents and aunties and uncles. Do you – what was the team that they all went for? Uh, So this was pre the AFL national competition. Uh, They were predominantly mad raving Port Adelaide, the South Australian variety. Um, Uh Magpies? Yep. So why why Fitzroy then? Uh, well, I've spent more of my life living in the state of Queensland, even though I was born in Adelaide, and I've always uh, – prop uh, AFL has been my number one passion, closely followed by property, but AFL has always been my number one passion. And uh, living in the state of Queensland when it was before a national competition – um, you were you were ridiculed and criticised by all your mates about what they used to call back then aerial ping pong, um, <laughs> and then when they created a national competition and Queensland put a team in back then, of course, was the Brisbane Bears. Uh, it was a no brainer for me. I was um I was going to support um my home state in in the national competition. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I've got a few mates that sort of grew up in that Fitzroy. Uh, bracket back in the day but you don't hear of that much no anymore yeah i um, think a similar thing happened with the with the rugby league there before it was a national rugby league competition you know people living all throughout queensland would have still followed rugby league but then when it became a national competition they might have had to stop following manly warringah or cronulla sharks or something like that to become a yeah. Brisbane broncos fan now, what did you think you were going to be as a kid? What what job did you think you were going to have? <laughs> uh, it's funny. Uh, right up to and including when I left high school, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. But my first recollection as a child, um, grade one, for whatever reason, my school teacher said, Simon, you should be a doctor. And I got no idea why she said that. Um, <laughs> but uh, the longer I got, I didn't really have any interest in in that, um, I always sort of uh, was reasonably good with numbers and mathematics, so I suppose uh, looking back, it shouldn't surprise me that I've landed in this field that is, that is a passion of studying property markets um, all throughout Australia every day, and, and, a, and a part of that, not the only part of that, but a part of that is um, an interest in numbers. Yeah, well, I was thinking like uh, I was listening to an interview when you when you were speaking about that, and I was thinking you've had many different roles, and I think... The earliest one that I can decipher was in customer service at CBA. But if you look at your career, it's, it's financial planning, mortgage brokering, uh, finance related. I know for myself that I got into the industry because my dad my dad was a fourth generation printer. And he's, he always used to say to me, even though I could operate one of those big printing machines, he's like, you don't want to get into printing. It's not good money or, you know, it's the prospects are not as good. And it's like, you want to be an accountant, you know? So he... He put this idea in my head and I didn't get quite into accounting, but I still got into the field of finance more in a sort of sales and marketing level. So I'm, I guess I'm curious for your own story. How did you sort of find your way into into property per se? Um, yeah, it, it, um, it just evolved. Like I, uh, I started, um, your, your research is very, very accurate. I started in a banking and finance career. And I guess back then, back in the days when when banks had a lot more substance than they they do now, 
um, people typically went direct to banks for all services, more so than the brokers that we that we go to now. Um, banking was, a, I guess, a well-respected profession within society. I knew it was always going to perform a role that was sort of white colour rather than blue collar. My skills was more my mind than my hands. But I just fell into banking. I it was back in the day when when banks used to send managers around to high schools and talk about, you know, if you want this career path, we've got we've got a course that you can do and you can apply this way. I just I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I thought I'll throw the hat in the ring and see what happens. They offered me a job. Um, look, looking back, I've you know just turned fifty, and uh, I guess what I've always done is helped people. Um, mm-hmm. I do enjoy that, and it's always been helping in one way or another with financial decisions. So, um, in in my banking days, it was helping him acquire loans, and after ten years of doing that with the Commonwealth Bank, um, I set up my own mortgage broking business. So instead of uh, I was still helping him acquire loans, but instead of uh, working for the bank doing that, I was working for the customer. Uh, uh-huh. and, and this was six point, right? Correct. Yep, okay. correct. That's right. Uh, and did that very, very successfully for ten years. Um, you know, again, show my age a bit, but I think it was two thousand and six. We were Australia's mortgage broker of the year. Um, but I was. Um, I had a couple of peri- a couple of years there, Jordan, where I was getting frustrated each day. Um, banks become very bureaucratic, and and we're increasingly losing a lot of common sense, and being quoted in you know, a policy book this and policy book that. I wasn't enjoying it, and I'm a I'm a big believer in life in general. Pursue things that make you happy. So I had a period mm. of time there whilst I was broking. I was trying to figure out what can I do that you know I genuinely have a passion for. And property's always been been part of that. And I realised that there was um, uh, I guess a niche that no one had filled, and that was that people always borrowed money to buy property, but there was no one actually helping them buy the property. Uh-huh. Uh, there was the the real estate agents, but they work for the seller of the property. There was no one actually helping them buy the property. So, was you could go and get professional advice to to acquire the liability through a bank or a broker. The buyer was always on their own, and I uh, so that's that's how I got in into property. But I knew in doing that, no one else had done it in terms of buying property f- just for investors and doing it all around Australia. Uh-huh. Um, I, what, what, I, year, what year was this? Uh, this was uh, 2008 and obviously I didn't know it at the time but I, I started a lot of study and setting up business systems and processes in early 2008 not knowing that just around the corner was the onset of the GFC. Oh, God. Um, and then, uh, and of course, that hit and uh, those close to me, family and friends were going, Simon, what are you doing? pursuing a business model that no one has ever done before at a time when there's arguably the most uncertainty the globe's ever seen you're going down that path when you've been successful you know for years doing what you're doing but i love a challenge and at the other end of most challenges in life is a is an exciting opportunity and i'm I'm proud to say that's that's how it's unfolded when did you like we all have those moments when you sort of pivot a business or you start a business you get your first client but then in particular, you get your second client, which which sort of to me signals that this thing is repeatable. When was sort of that aha moment for you? You know, that's a great question. I, I, can't, I can't recall that. I was fortunate, I suppose, in that having an established mortgage-broking business, I had an established clientele and I had established trust. 
So what I did was just let those existing connections know that I can help them in another way. And, uh-huh. and there was a few years there where we were still running our mortgage broking business in conjunction with gaining some traction in the in the property investment business. So I never felt the moment that you're describing there, I guess, because I was still dealing with the same people, um, but uh-huh. just helping them in, a, in, in an additional way. So there's sort of a cross-pollination. I, I do remember looking um, or finding your LinkedIn profile and, and, yeah, Six Point, I think, eventually closed or you, you finished working there as a director in 2017. So there's obviously a period where you're sort of segueing out of this business into the business which really is what drives your passion, which is a good thing that people can learn because like a lot of people think that if they're going to start a business – they should just quit their job immediately and start going into this business and they have to make it viable within six months. But there's also another pathway where you can sort of, you can segue over time, if that makes sense. I guess you've proven that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I, back in 2008, when I, when I made the decision to um, uh, set up, you know, an investment property services, it was always with the intention to to continue for as, you know, for, for as ever uh, doing the broking side of things. I, you know, from 2008 onwards, my 100% focus was on the property side of things. But we had uh, resources, infrastructure, personnel, you know, trained people in place to uh, to do the broking side of things. But while my focus was 100% on property, and then um, over the years, that um, both those services uh, worked hand in hand. Um, but yeah, 2017, we just sort of said, no, I, uh, I want to focus 100%. Um, as a business, just on the property investment side of things, of course, roughly 90 odd percent of our clients, when they buy a property, they still have to arrange a loan, um, and we would just refer them to trusted brokers. No money changes hands between our office and uh, and the brokers, but we just refer them to good people that we've we've worked with before. Mm. Do you, do you think like thinking about your career in this real estate market, you move from banking on the liability side to the sort of the asset side what's for you been the interesting highlight and low light so far the low light would be uh 2000 and it's a period of time rather than an individual moment uh, yeah. so 2014 through to last year 2019 where australian real estate sector just got I was like a baseball bat every second month, just whack, whack, whack. And it all the common denominator for each of those whacks was what was happening with Sydney's property market. So I guess the the, reg, it started, the, the regulators, uh, APRA got increasingly concerned during the early stages of Sydney's boom of the rising mortgages in Sydney. And then the, the regulatory response to that was, we've got to make some changes to credit policy. But rather than address their perceived concern with Sydney and to a lesser extent Melbourne, the regulatory response affected all of Australia. Um, Mm -hmm. So anyone who wanted to acquire a loan, it got harder. Um, And that directly affects all of our clients because they've got to go through that financial process before they can purchase the asset. So we had a a period of, let's call it four years, where there was um, several different layers to the APRA tightening. Uh, we had uh, daily allegations that Australia had a housing affordability crisis, which really meant that Sydney and Melbourne was expensive to buy a property, but didn't mean Australia mm. was that way. Yeah. Um, we had two federal elections that negative gearing was the centre 
of it. And then 2019 appeared to be the year of the uh, each, each state in Australia um, rental regulations, where a, a series of, um, again, baseball bats at, uh, at landlords um, with what they can and can't do with um, with their assets. So, um, and we, we, we look forward to starting 2020 with some clean air, the, f- the first year in a while where we could just get on with doing what we do without going over um, speed bumps every day. Um, and now we've got the coronavirus, but that affects everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so that I, think that, <laughs> I think the moral is that... Um, change there, yeah there's there's always change but also that could be considered a highlight in that uh there's never a dull day right never a dull day and look we're all wired differently but for whatever reason jordan that seems like i love a challenge um whilst i can get quite animated uh uh in expressing frustration with you know various regulatory changes and, and announcements one thing i've always had is determination and um, there's always going to be situations in life where something happens that we don't like, but it's also important for individuals to sometimes recognise, but it is what it is, now what am I going to do about it? And just complaining about it is not going to change it. It's just going to make everyone around you uh, miserable and grumpy. And I, my nature is to tend to find a way to um, overcome challenges, and that usually creates opportunities. Mm. Now, speaking of opportunity propertyology is sort of, uh, to me, stands out as a business that uh, sort of really, it, it personifies you, right? Like it, it's very much, you love to join the dots in the property markets. I get a sense that you may be inspired by people like Buffett, who are oftentimes looking for undertapped value, uh, not speculative value. You know, you spoke about those those two states in you know Sydney, Melbourne, where mm-hmm things have just been going through the roof for a very long time and there's a lot of speculation in the big smoke. I don't know. I just wanted to fundamentally, you know, understand you and the way that uh, you want to drive your client's lifestyle. What are sort of the, the overarching principles that you have for assessing markets? Like I could have made that assumption about um, that Buffett approach, but how, how would you articulate to someone that you just met at a Brisbane Lions game? Uh, well, I guess that two two things. There's the the purpose behind why you know why we do what we do, and then there's the the, the methodology um, we follow when we're executing it. So the purpose at the end of the day, for those people who are motivated to later on in life um, have a better lifestyle than what an age pension would provide, that's our that's our clientele. They're not defined by a an occupation type or uh, an annual income. It's more an attitude, uh, you know, of, of wanting to be proactive during the time that they're in the workforce to make some good financial decisions so that in years to come they've planted enough seeds that will bear enough fruit to do what they want to do. So that's the purpose. Um, mm-hmm. The method on how we do that, We there's all sorts of things that people can invest in. Those who prefer residential real estate, um, that's – that's our market. So um, you you use some terms there that I'll agree with. Joining dots, that's that's largely how my mind works. I believe that there is such a thing as a science to property markets, but like a, a few other sciences, it's not an exact science. Um, mm. It's impossible to write an algorithm or something like that to sort of say, uh, uh, here's the formula for picking markets. But our, our business, I guess, as opposed to the family home, which needs to satisfy the very important 
emotional side of things. That's where we live. Um, we're working for investors, so property we have to see as a financial instrument in much the same way a stockbroker looks at a share on a stock exchange. So it's a commodity that we're helping people invest in. That commodity is shelter. We always need shelter. Um, and my role in joining the dots is, is to understand all the things that influence the behaviour of buyers, uh, the behaviour of sellers. Um, some of that's in data. Um, a lot of it's in understanding decisions that have been made in different towns and cities and how that's going to affect job creation. Because wherever there's uh, more jobs created in the future, there'll be demand for more shelter, if you can think of it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I remember having this conversation with um, a builder developer recently and how he documents the suburb that he bought a house in and he looks for like the biggest thing for him or the, one of the biggest indicators for him that drives job growth is investment in public infrastructure, particularly rail, because that's been a big thing in uh, Melbourne. You know, we, we've sort of been cutting out all of these um, level crossings and getting overpasses like Sky Rail and whatnot. Um, and so he, he thinks that that is a, a key indicator for determining future growth in the area. And you can sort of document that in the data and therefore join the dots. Um, I guess I was intrigued because the extent of your workload seems to be focused on reading and just consuming as much information as possible like a machine to then get yourself to a point where you can assess an opportunity. And I, I guess I was curious, when you're sitting down with the client or assessing an opportunity for investment yourself, where where does that process start and what does it look like? For the client? For the, Yeah, for the client, yeah. Um, that We have a, a very long consultation process. Um, it, it's a series of discussions and in between discussions is uh, – there's some targeted pieces of information. So it's an education process, um, uh, partly, you know, education about our business, um, about, you know, what the process would be if you engaged us. But just as important, if not more important, is recognising that consciously or subconsciously everyone's got an opinion about property based on their journey through life. And we're, we're trying to, I guess, extract some of the a lot of a lot of the poor quality information about property markets and and then replace it with some really good quality information so that people if they do engage their services can see property as a commodity as a financial instrument as opposed to a home um, when we do that 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 puts them in a position where they're more equipped to support our recommendations because they understand property as a investment asset class as opposed to an emotional thing that we live in. Mm. Um, so it, 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 there's a long there's a long lead time um, from the time someone first reaches out to us until they actually engage their services, formally engage their services, and then it might typically be. Um, a month or two before we've we've found that right property for them, and and when you're looking at that asset, that property, like I know as a value investor, I love cash flow, and I I often look at valuations based on cash flow in a company or how much free cash flow they have. So I get, I guess I was curious, what are the key things that you look for in a property, or what are sort of the key indicators that that are markers for you? Uh, the most important decision for someone investing in property is the individual town or city 
that that property is bought in. It's not the actual bricks and mortar, and that's uh, I think the undoing of a lot of DIY property investors. Uh. They get they get to, and they're often not conscious of this, but they get they get too absorbed in the bricks and the mortar and the the feel and the touch. And if um, that, that's how we're actually programmed as human beings, because we do live in properties you know as children we grow up in it and then we some stage we might buy that first family home we're focusing then on schools and shops and how the property looks and how it makes us feel but as an investor that 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 is irrelevant the most important thing is the individual town or city that we buy that property in that will always have the biggest influence on what the individual property within that city grows by. Uh, for, for example, my home city, Brisbane, is obviously Australia's third largest city. Um, over the last 10, 11 years, an apartment in Brisbane today is worth the same today as what it was 11 years ago. The standard house has only increased in value by 20%. Uh, but those who made decisions based on the bricks and mortar, you're still going to you're still going to be end up with either the zero growth or the 20% growth. Either way, it's not much. Um, mm. But other parts of Australia uh, have seen asset values grow by 80 90% over that same period of time. So the key is the investor needs to not focus on the individual property asset until after they've got the right town or city first. Now, how we do that, it's a process of elimination. Firstly, we don't waste any time investing in locations that have already been been performing strongly for a couple of years uh, because locations don't perform strongly for more than three or four years. History's taught us that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, Similarly, a location that's, um, say, a Sydney or Melbourne that's recently had a strong period of growth. History's taught us that it'll be a long time before it has another period of strong growth so there's a, a a very basic way of eliminating lots of locations throughout australia um, mm. and then we focus on what's happening at an economic sense not just what's the economy of each town and city like today but more importantly what decisions have been made over say the last you know one two three years that are going to have an influence on that economy in the coming few years and that that process um most people are already aware that we picked Hobart before Hobart started to show any price growth. But Mm. um, how we found it was by understanding those decisions that had happened behind the scenes that in years to come would have a positive influence on Hobart's economy. So it's it, it sort of goes back to that old adage to my Greek father likes to use that it's better to buy a dump in a good suburb than it is to buy a really nice house in a dumpy suburb, if that makes sense. Um, or it, yes, or it, it depends really because that suburb could become uh, nice for various reasons over time. Yeah, well, I guess um, it's it's pressure on – it's buyer activity on mass that's going to create property prices to grow. Uh, so a suburb, for example, which the media often refer to, a, a suburb can't have a you know period of three or four years where property values in that suburb grow – significantly unless the city itself does that there will always be data that um you know is released that may suggest that a suburb's boomed but at an individual suburb level the number of properties that are transacted is very small um Mm. you know typical properties held for seven to ten years so we don't change properties very often and at a suburb level the data is very unreliable so if someone sees um uh data on a particular suburb that shows a 
big price growth within a 12-month period of time, they probably should take that with a grain of salt. Um, it, properties within that suburb would not have done that unless the city itself had performed really, really well, and obviously the same in reverse. That's that's really interesting because, I, I, like, a, being a fan of psychology and cognitive science, I guess you could call it, they say that uh, you can never trust a study that doesn't have uh, that has less than 150 people included in it. So that's quite interesting to hear that data-wise, it's good better analogy. to be looking. Yeah, yeah it, like it's, good analogy. it's better to be looking at um, a larger data sample that covers an entire city as opposed to just specific suburbs. Yeah, and um, property data, um, you know, me- change in median value is the most common, I guess, metric that the broader public are, you know, here. Um, it, it, that, that figure is only useful if there's a big enough sample size of properties that have transacted in that reporting period. So, for example, um, if, if there's a report saying the median house price over the last month has increased or decreased by X, the consumer still needs to understand, well, you know, is that is there enough properties that have transacted in that one month for that figure mm. to be reliable? Now, if it's a, at a suburb level, there might have been 10 properties that changed hands. That's really a useless piece of information. If it's a yeah. big capital city, well, there would have been lots of properties that transacted in that one month. So it's more reliable figures, but still it's only one month. It's only 30 days for an individual asset class that changes hands every seven to ten years so it, it is very volatile over a quarter for a capital city there's been a lot more properties that have transacted um, mm. over a, uh, on an individual suburb level over any period of time it's largely um, useless information from a property data perspective when it comes to data I mean we're with equities, I always like to look at like my favourites are Morningstar. Morningstar has amazing financials, and there's another resource tool called Guru Focus, which a lot of their, uh, I guess, valuations is based on cash flow as opposed to earnings. So hence, I've got a preference for that. We all know of Core Logic. I think I watch their updated videos on YouTube every month uh, amongst each capital city. And nationally, of course, as well. I guess I was curious, what are your go-to resources that you like to utilize in particular to sort of, you know, when you're consuming a lot of that information and building this view in your mind, what are sort of your top go-to resources? Um, so we pay, uh, you mentioned CoreLogic, they're our, our friends. We pay them a lot of money each month and every number that <laughs> CoreLogic's got, um, Propertyology's got. Uh, most of the stuff that um, that that is available from Core Logic, the broader public will never see. There's no, yeah. there's no demand for that. There'd be no interest in that. But um, we we get that information every single month. When we're not talking just the eight capital cities that Core Logic, you know, um, talk about. It's literally every non-capital city location in Australia. But it's not just the change in median value stuff. That's um, largely boring to us because it's rear vision mirror information. Uh, when we're investing, we're all uh, we're do- we're all doing it on on, on the um, on the hope that in years to come that the asset performs well. So looking in the rear vision mirror is not going to be greatly helpful for that. Um, no. But Core Logic have some data that um, you know how long does it take to sell a typical property and is that number increasing or decreasing from month to month? How many properties have sold within uh, within a particular period? Again, is that increasing or decreasing? So that shows a bit of a, 
um, a bit of a pulse check throughout Australia. Uh, we get an awful amount of information from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Uh-huh. Some of that is uh, economic related. Some of that is um, the future housing supply pipeline. So building approval volumes is very, very important to us. That's the leading indicator for future volumes of properties that will be in a market. Mm-hmm. Um, it's information like that that enable propertyology, for example, to anticipate that there could have been a, a downturn in Sydney in Melbourne before it happened. Um, the, the downturn that Sydney and Melbourne recently had was caused by an oversupply. But looking at building approval volume data um, w- was able to give us an idea a couple of years out before it actually become an oversupply situation that there was potential for that to happen. And then there's a lot of things that, that are important to us but aren't in a number. So, um, you know, the desk that I'm con- conducting this discussion with um, with you, Jordan, for example, is surrounded by computer screens and all sorts of, you know, spreadsheets, <laughs> dozens and dozens of them, and we get data from different sources. But other really good quality information is not in a number sense. Uh, my daily habits include maybe four or five hours every day reading material, so not numbers, um, reading information about what's happening in different industries and what different companies are doing um, that one way or another is going to have an impact on more jobs or less jobs. And that information is is the most valuable leading indicator as to what property markets might do in the future. Yeah. I think what you just said reaffirms the point that people who are leaders as investors or advisors in any financial market space just consume an immense amount of information. There's just not... you can never not be consuming something to build that worldview of what's yeah. actually If there happening. were 36 hours in the day, I'd be, I'd be spending, you know, 20 hours a day just consuming and interpreting information. And then, and then you need to find part of our systems is over the years developing ways to store that information because the, the human brain can only remember. You can consume as much information as you want, but, you, you know, how do you retain all that? Mm. Um, so we, we've built in processes if it's if it's uh, good information that's in numbers, okay. Well, we've got various spreadsheets that talk to each other to catalogue that. But the stuff I've been talking there about decisions relating to jobs that's not in numbers, uh, we we literally catalogue that. Um, we, we've got a library. Look of it as consider as a folder in a on a server from Cairns in Townsville in far north Queensland to. Hobart and Launceston in you know southern Tasmania. Um, we've got a folder for literally every location in Australia, and and good or bad um, information about their economy. When we when we find that, we read that, we interpret it, we file that, um, and then over a period of time, we sort of we sort of um, we reflect on a regular basis, and we sort of go, "There's been lots of positive stuff that we've read over, say, the last twelve months." about their future economy of, I just mentioned Launceston, um, mm. or whichever location. Um, we then, when we, when we get that, when we have that moment of re- reflection and feel there's been a lot of positive decisions made, um, we, we bunker down and we then um, revisit all that information and make an educated decision about uh, is the outlook for that property market um, you know, really good? And, and if so, we're then going to start recommending that people buy properties there. So one thing I really like about 
your commentary? I mean, you've done media for, for quite a while now. You could pick them all, whether it's Domain, realestate.com, Sky News, etc. Is um, It's very clear-cut and it's very obvious that you offer a service, right? There's this, there's this trend that's happened in the last few years with this sort of um, – this capital market cycle with all this money coming through that you get a lot of these, I like to call them contrepreneurs, but particularly now it's become a thing in the real estate space and you probably see them on social media. They're, they're always, I always get these ads where they're like, you know, you too could own 30 houses over two years and be so over leveraged that if any uh, change in the market or interest rate moves up or down, you're pretty much screwed. And one of my favorite fields of market commentary or media commentary in the moment is uh, these YouTube channels who uncover this sort of stuff. Um, and I guess for you as a person who's a buyer's advocate and advisor, what sort of the uh, the big red flags or or things that people should be wary of when they're looking at these you know stupid online courses or programs or people that they're engaging with as a yeah. service provider? It's oh, well, those who make it sound easy that that should be a red flag for people. Um, you know, property markets. I, I would argue that other than trying to find a cure for cancer, there would be few things on this planet that are more complex than property markets. <laughs> At the end of the day, what what my full time job is is trying to predict human behaviour because property is about people. It's not about population growth like a lot of people think. It's about people because we live in property and uh, and trying to predict their behaviour. I mean, what is more unpredictable than that? <laughs> Seriously, what is more unpredictable than human behaviour? Uh, it's it's not easy. So those who make it sound like it's easy, it's not. Um, there is a science, as I've said, but it is no by no means an exact science. Um, anyone who's promoting a a product, a property that's brand new or anyone who's their, their spiel um, one way or another tries to um, position people to buy a brand new property, they are the biggest red flag that you can find Yeah. Uh, because it's not an arm's length transaction. If someone's buying a brand new house or an apartment, they're buying from the developer and in between the consumer and the developer will be people who've got the gift of the gab um, that are very clever at, you know, this is why this one's good for you. But that person yeah. with the gift of the gab is a salesperson at the end of yeah. the day. They make their revenue by saying what they have to say to convince someone to buy that property as opposed to any other property. So a genuine advisor in property, um, like other professions, doesn't does not have a vested interest in a product. Mm. Think of the doctor. The family doctor, if they say you need a, um, a cortisone injection, it's not because they get paid extra for you taking the needle. Um, they've got you know an education in medicine and, and your best interests um, as their number one priority. And a, a, a genuine property investment advisor will similarly have tertiary qualifications in this field. They'll have an objective mind to every capital city, to every non-capital city. They'll have years and years of experience. They'll have scar tissue um, to support that experience uh, and they'll make a recommendation firstly on a particular location in Australia and then on an individual property without, an in, um, without a vested interest in it. So it sounds like two key indicators, someone who's selling some pipe dream that you it's going to be easy, particularly in a short 
time frame and if they potentially have a vested interest. Like Beware of the vested interest for life in general, but especially in property because uh, there's some there's some clever people out there. Now, we briefly spoke about, well, we're chatting it, uh, about it off air about coronavirus and property today. I, I liked your video uh, speaking about the short and long-term effects of the coronavirus. There's a lot that has happened in the last week and I'm sure in the coming weeks it'll change just as rapidly. I feel like I've lived through a month in the yeah. last week. Yeah. Um, we know we're probably heading towards a short-term global recession influenced mainly by the fact that this virus is shutting down most of the economy by necessity yes. and that the turnaround will probably be not as rapid but will be quicker than, say, the GFC perhaps. I, I guess for you, what does um, what does the future look like amongst the property markets over the next year? Yeah, um, global recession. Totally agree, but we, but no one should be concerned by that. Um, anyone in in Australia um, probably will just hearing the word recession for a lot of people would scare them because it's been now twenty nine years since we've had one. So um, there's, I guess, a lack of understanding broadly amongst twenty five million people about that what that means, and so just the fear of the unknown is is not a good thing for the human psyche. But um, recession means. Two, two quarters, six months, where an economy doesn't grow. Um, where We are in this together, 7.8 billion people on this planet. And this is the f- f- this is the only time I can think of, Jordan, and I'm, I might be wrong, but I, I can't think of another time in the history of mankind where there's been one issue that's affected every person on the planet and we all have to roll our sleeves up and address it together. I can't think of anything. Mm. Um, so from a property market perspective, I'm not at all concerned. Uh, I'm a realist. I know that there will be lots and lots of jobs lost over the next uh, couple of months. But also what's more important is understanding why that's happening um, because the reality is when we all go into our cocoons, we consume less goods and services. There are some things we just physically can't can't do. Um, so lots of job losses, but um, understanding why and then also knowing that there's going to be probably the biggest stimulus packages collectively, not just federal government, um, but collective, collectively the biggest amount of stimulus the country's ever seen. Mm. We can do that because we are uh, we have a strong economic foundation to be able to do that. And at the end of the day, housing is shelter. Um, that term, safe as houses, uh, with or without a recession, with or without a coronavirus, um, and whether we own it or whether we rent it, we still need to live in it. Australia um, went through the property market, um, survived the GFC incredibly well. In fact, property prices increased, not decreased. And that was a, a crisis caused by a poor global economy. This is a crisis caused by a germ, not a poor economy. Um, and global economies are better now than the GFC. Um, especially banks globally, they are um, they are cashed up largely because of the GFC. Um, yeah. Everyone recognised uh, from from the GFC that how important banks are. So so banks are well capitalised. Federal governments uh, coffers are in in a good position. Reserve Bank are going to be behind this. In the same way that you got seven point eight billion people rallying together to kill the germ. Once the germ's killed, those same seven point eight billion people 
will on mass release this pent up demand um, and all the economic stimulus that will come with it. I feel very confident that buyer behaviour out the other side of this, so in the second half of 2020, will be as strong as we've seen for many years. I think we're largely in a holding pattern for prop- what property prices will do, quite quite simply because there will be very few property transactions over this cocooning period. So that doesn't mean property prices plummet. Um, I just think very few transactions. Um, so largely be a flat line followed by more than likely a significant surge in prices um, because mm. of the stimulus and because of the uh, all-time record low interest rates, which is very relevant to property prices. Yeah, I think um, it feels very much like a a wartime era or economy where all of a sudden, you know, the, the economy is at war. So all production and, and things have to be changed to suit this new way of living. Like, I mean, a good example would be how Coles is now hiring 5,000 casuals yeah. Yeah. across Australia, let alone Woolies. I don't even know how many they're hiring at the moment. So you can sort of see that while there is damage in places like hospitality and retail, there will be in supply chain um, a massive push to hire people. And then you can see when all this goes back to normal, people are going to want to go to restaurants again. They're going to want to go to the movies. They're going to want to go to this and that. And that will have massive implications. You can actually see it. I remember looking at data on the US economy in uh, 45 versus I think it was up to 48. They basically went through a massive boom from about 47, 48 onwards to the mid-50s simply because there was just all this pent-up spending, I guess. And uh, so it's going to be very interesting uh, the next year, that's for sure. Yeah, and look, people need to take comfort in the fact that, look, it was only two months ago before, maybe a couple of weeks before it even heard the term coronavirus for the first time, Propertyology produced a report and detailed um, why we feel this way. But we described the fundamentals of Australian real estate to be the strongest they've been since the GFC, the strongest they've been in 12 years. Um we and we outlined why we felt that way. We we feel the same way now, um, because a, a virus is not an economic fracture. It it is a it is a very very frustrating disruptive period for everyone's lives, and we all no one likes it. No one no one chose to do it, but it's here, um, and we know what it is, and we know we know what we've got to do um, to do to, um, to get through this very frustrating period of time, but. The fundamentals don't change because of the virus. Um, the change will be that we're going to have a, a period of X number of months, whether that's four months, six months, 12 months, who knows, um, a period of months when uh, a number of sectors will lose lots of jobs and, as you've rightly pointed out, a number of other sectors will um, see a higher than normal increase in jobs. And then when we come out of our cocoons, that will balance back to somewhere like it was beforehand and we'll be back to the same really, really strong fundamentals, the strongest we've seen in in a decade or more. So it is shelter. Property is, is shelter. And um, with or without the coronavirus, Australia has had a, a period of a couple of years where we haven't built as many new dwellings to support our growing population as what we need. So we've actually got an undersupply of, of housing 
in a general sense throughout Australia. Um, and we've got record low interest rates. We've got credit available again. Um, and we're going to see a lot of stimulus. So I think it's, imp- it's, it's hard to think about the stimulus now because understandably we're trying to absorb the daily changes to our routines. But this is a defined uh, short period of time in the overall scheme of things and the stimulus will be huge. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, look, I, we need to jump into some rapid-fire questions to finish you off. Uh, so what does your morning routine currently look like? I cannot survive without caffeine. Um, Flat white. So after, after, uh, after the shower, the first thing I do is I um, – Grab the dogs. We've got uh, a very important part of our family, a couple of cavoodles, and um, oh, nice. they enjoy the walk as much as I do. So we walk around to our local cafe together, and um, I drink the coffee on the way back. They get their exercise. <laughs> I like uh, that. And then uh, we drop our um, our son to school on the way in, into work. And evening, how do you sort of uh, decompress at night? Uh, there's usually a few more hours of uh, consuming that information we were talking about earlier, Jordan, um, that the normal you know, disruptions that we all have during, during the day um, that can really only be done during the normal working hours. They take priority, but there's always a, a few extra hours I try to cram in what's, what's happening around the country. And then I like to unwind. I, I love my AFL, whether it's Brisbane Lions or anything AFL, I, I, I consume lots of that. And in the summer, it's um, usually cricket. Mm. Do you, do you have like a T Twenty team? Uh, Brisbane Heat only because um, I live in Brisbane, but um, I just enjoy that competition. Yeah. Um, if you were a millennial and you're in this stage right now where you were thinking about buying a house, what would you be thinking about for the next year in particular? I would be thinking about the lowest ever interest rates in any living Australia's lifetime and how privileged they are to take advantage of that. Um, it, it's, the, it's the biggest cost of buying a property is, you know, the ability to for the individual budget to, to afford that mortgage. Um, and we're going to see these low interest rates for many, many years. Um, so the sooner someone can gather together a big enough deposit, um, uh, do so. Uh, yeah. The other thing I'd say is learn learn from some mistakes of past generations. I want to say mistakes, no one means to make a mistake, but a lot better quality information, a lot more experiences available now to what past generations had. Where you live is not necessarily where you should buy property. Uh, most people now have heard that term rent vesting. It's real. It's not for everybody, but it's uh, an innovative way of not only getting into a property market quicker, but it's also a very clever way of using whatever money you can afford to buy property and buy in the best parts of Australia, which very rarely will be the city that you happen to live in. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend that for a lot of millennials who listen to this podcast. I think um, that is probably going to be the, the quickest way that people can get into the market. Um, Last question for you. If you had a book that you would gift to the audience for Christmas, let's say, uh, what would the book be and why? Mm. I read a lot but not so much books and I think the reason I don't read 
read books is because I do <laughs> read so much stuff. So when I when I want some downtime, it's often not reading. Um, the E Myth is a really good one um, for those people who have an interest in business. Really, really, it's not a big book, but some really basic business principles that are applicable to any profession. Um, that's a that's a good one. Uh, good to great um, is a, is another good business book. But also like um, biographies, just um, uh, just successful people, whether they've been successful in sport or or business or whatever. I, I, I like reading their real stories, and 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 you find that they've all had challenges and they've all had oh moments. Mm. Um, and there's often uh, some common themes behind what makes someone successful um, in any any form of life. So. Biographies are really good for learning lessons from people who are no longer with us. I really like that. Yeah, and often, well, the reason people write books is uh, they've often they've got a high profile, otherwise the book won't sell. But there's <laughs> always going to be stuff in that book that we've never heard about in the in the public domain. Otherwise, you know, there's nothing interesting. There's no reason to buy the book. So, um, but yeah, there's there's a lot to learn from biographies. We've all had challenges. Mm. Look, Simon, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on. Where can people find what you're doing on the interwebs or websites that you currently work on? Where's the best place to find you? So propertyology.com.au. There is a page, uh, a latest news page on the website, um, roughly four times, four, maybe five times a month. Um we publish blogs, which is usually uh, – it's never sales-based. It's always uh, researchy, property market, educational material. Uh, so you can spend days, if you've got that much time, uh, just on that one landing page. But um, a, a more efficient way of doing it, get on the website and subscribe to Propertyology's newsletter. Uh, it's free and it's not – we will never sell you any sales material. Um, once a fortnight, um, we will uh, send out a, a newsletter that will contain two or three educational blogs. All right. We'll make sure we link all of that, um, of course, in the show notes. But um, Simon, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Jordan. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes. And consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G O M A R K E T S. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>